On this podcast, we go one step beyond publications and guidelines to speak directly with leading experts in interventional pulmonology. This podcast will address not only fundamental topics and exciting publications, but also unconventional topics for which the evidence base isn't that robust. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily endorsed by the AAPIP. This is your host, Dodit Chadda, an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And with that, let's dive into the next episode. So with us today, we are fortunate to have two very renowned guests. Our topic of discussion today is cryobiopsies and diffuse parenchymal lung disease. And I could think of no two better experts to dissect this down than Dr. Maldonado and Dr. Lenz. Dr. Maldonado is an associate professor of medicine and thoracic surgery and an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Lenz is an assistant professor of medicine and thoracic surgery, also at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you, Dr. Maldonado and Dr. Lenz, for joining me today on the, po- on the podcast. Uh, maybe if you both can please clarify if you have any conflicts of interest. So I have, I have received uh, an unrestricted educational plan from Irby for research purposes, and that will be my only conflict of interest for this. Yeah, so, I don't have thank, any. thank you, Dr. Maldonado and Dr. Lenz. So let's get started by discussing the yield of cryobiopsies in patients with DBLDs. So approximately 50% of patients with UIV can be diagnosed on HRCT, but the rest need a biopsy. Dr. Lenz, am I correct in saying that the main reason to obtain histology in DBLDs is to diagnose or rule out UIV? Well, I, I think that is... Uh, among the things that we're most interested in. So, uh, although I think diagnosing uh, diseases that are not UIP are still potentially important, um, but I I think a lot of the interest in the field right now, especially as we have new antifibrotic drugs, and and much of this is focused on UIP, is uh, to rule in or out UIP as the entity that, A, tends to be among the worst prognoses and, and has prognostic information for the patient, and that also has specific treatment available at the moment. But I, I think there's still some utility in, in considering, even in patients that with with scans, you know, high-risk CTs that are not compatible with UIP, uh, I think there's still some utility in, in sampling those patients to see if there's specific therapies available uh, to them. So how good are cryobiopsies? What is the overall diagnostic yield for cryobiopsies, and how well do they do specifically with UIP? Uh, well, uh, this is a, a difficult question uh, because there's the issue of diagnostic yield, there's an issue of diagnostic accuracy, and there's an issue with just how we define and diagnose uh, diffuse parenchymal lung diseases in general, which has historically been based uh, a lot on pathology, although uh, there's a reason now that pathology is not the gold standard for diagnosis, and it's a multidisciplinary uh, committee discussion. Uh, because pathology is not everything in these diseases. Um, so, I, and then the other issue with this literature is that there's been, uh, everybody does this procedure a little bit differently or potentially a lot of it differently with respect to uh, how far from the pleura they're, they're biopsying, what probe they're using. I mean, the, the basic principle is the same, but there's a lot of uh, variation around the edges that, um, that matters potentially here and that will play into diagnostic yield for different things. I think so I think in, in broad strokes with most folks with most of the larger papers or, or series or meta analyses, whatever has come up with is it somewhere in the seventy to eighty percent range. 
the caveat to that being that, especially a lot of the early literature, uh, was if you found like any fibrosis, they counted that as a hit, which is not a very, I think, accurate way to look at things. Um, but the more recent, uh, especially in some of the older, but especially some of the more recent papers, especially uh, the largest series to date, uh, which is uh, Revaglia and uh, Paletti's, you know, 700 patient series that was recently published. Uh, where they ran all these patients through multidisciplinary committee and, and got a diagnosis, a confident diagnosis in 90%. It's pretty good. Um, now, they they might do it. They they have the biggest volume, and, and they've done this a lot, and so your mileage may vary at smaller centers that are just picking this procedure up. But I think when it's done right, uh, this procedure, while probably not as good as surgical biopsy, uh, is, a, is a reasonable chance of getting a, a diagnosis in a less invasive way. Fantastic. Thank you. So we know that MDDs are the gold standard to diagnose PPLDs, and pathologists often change their diagnosis based on clinical and radiographic information. So Dr. Maldonado, please clarify this for me. Histopathology for PPLDs isn't all black and white. I mean, do pathologists also need to form a differential diagnosis like clinicians and radiologists? Right, yeah, I think that's a really good question. And so, and, you, and you're right to say that pathologists will change their diagnosis based on the overall impression from clinician and radiologists, too. So I think about 20% of, of uh, pathologists change their diagnosis in the original Farty uh, paper, which is that kind of uh, kind of landmark study that uh, evaluated the contribution of uh, sequential addition of information, clinical, radiological, and pathologic, to the confidence in the diagnosis and interstitial agreement. So what we know of ILD is that if you put a bunch of experts in the room from pathology, you know, uh, from the clinic and from radiology, they ultimately reach a consensus that has pretty good confidence. So uh, the, the, the issue is that just like as clinicians, we look at a patient and we formulate the differential diagnosis, the radiologists do the same thing, the pathologists do the same thing. So any kind of study, and, and we'll talk about the Romagnoli paper, I'm sure, soon, any study that will ask pathologists to have one diagnosis and stick with it and compare this to whatever standard is going to be uh, almost nonsensical, right? So uh, the, the only good way to analyze this with all the caveats and limitations of the multidisciplinary discussion, we'll call it silver standard, uh, uh, but yet accepted as the way to formulate a, a, a formal diagnosis for ILD. With all these caveats, the best way to analyze the contribution of cryobiopsy to the diagnosis is to look at its contribution to the multidisciplinary diagnosis discussion and just compare it to surgical lumbarpsy. And this study was done. It was done uh, by Sarah Tomasetti. It was published in the Blue Journal. This is, in my view, the only reasonable paper that, that looked at uh, cryobiopsy, and what we found, or what they found, is that cryobiopsy and surgical endopsy have exactly the same contribution to the diagnosis of ILD, which means two things. One is that they're both completely useless, uh, or they're both pretty good, or anything in between, right? And so that's really where we are right now. We don't really know whether any kind of biopsy um, contributes to uh, uh, improvement outcomes. What we know is that in the past, clinician, radiologist, and pathologist happy because we've reached a diagnosis, we've labeled the patient with some kind of diagnosis, but as far as whether we've done any good to the patient, we don't know. There's no study today, which is amazing, that has looked at what happened to the PFCs of patients that are submitted to any kind of biopsy for ILD, which is crazy to think about it. And certainly, no study today that has seen any improvement in patient outcomes after, after biopsy. So that's the 
question right now. The, the question is not really cryobiopsy versus surgical lumbiopsy. There's a little bit of a vendetta against cryobiopsy from a minority, a vocal minority in the IRV world in particular, uh, but but the same minority grants some sense immunity to surgical lumbiopsy, which makes zero sense because that's a dangerous and it might be unethical procedure to do in patients with IRV. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll add a couple things here, if that's okay. So, one point on the, the Tomasetti paper that was surgical biopsy or cryobiopsy's contribution to MDC, uh, about 50% of the patients in that study actually were diagnosed with UIP. So, getting back at earlier questions with how good is cryobiopsy for UIP, uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to say that with certainty, but certainly in a lot of these centers that are doing all of these, we're diagnosing a, a lot of UIP with this procedure. And then the other thing, getting at uh, Fabian's uh, question about or, or point about biopsy and, and outcomes. The only the only data of which I'm aware, which is not super strong, but we uh, published a letter uh, in Journal of Thoracic Diseases earlier this year where we looked at all the patients at our site uh, who had been diagnosed with IPF and went on to go on to antifibrotic therapy. That was about 175 patients. And then we looked at how they got their diagnosis. Was it by high-res CT? Was it by uh, cryobiopsy, was it by surgical lung biopsy, and the patients who were uh, biopsied, which may not be the exact same as the patients who were diagnosed by high-res, they were a little bit younger, uh, they were uh, a little bit more robust as far as comorbidities, although their PFTs were the same uh, in all three of these groups. Patients who were biopsied and then went on to antifibrotic therapy lived about two to three years longer. Uh, okay. and, and whether we are, whether those patients are, are different cohorts and we're seeing that, or whether a biopsy will allow earlier diagnosis before your scan gets bad enough to be diagnostic of UIP. We don't know, but maybe some hint that early biopsy in some patients might might lead to better outcomes. I would argue here that it's pure lead time bias, which is diagnosing these patients before they get to terminal fibrosis, which is a typical UIP radiologic pattern. So uh, jury is still out, but but uh, yeah, yeah, that that paper is pretty good actually. Uh, it kind of replicates what's been done before for surgical biopsy, showing that patients who undergo surgical biopsy do better than patients who don't and are diagnosed on the basis of a typical high-risk CT, but that, of course, is because they've got an atypical CT, so it's not as bad as the, the typical UIP CT. Perfect. Fantastic. So just again to clarify the previous point, correct me if I'm wrong, so we have three tiers of differential diagnoses coming up, one from the pathologist, one from the clinician, and one from the radiologist. And then we all sit down, we have a discussion called the MDD to come up with the most likely diagnosis. So it's probably this large dependence on human subjectivity at three levels to come up with a diagnosis um, as one of the main reasons as to why it is challenging to come up with consistent results across cardiovascular studies. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes. Okay, great assessment. Perfect. So let's move on to the histological gold standard, surgical biopsies. And Dr. Maldonado just alluded to Romagnoli's uh, paper in the Blue Journal. In this paper, 21 patients underwent cryobiopsy immediately followed by that surgical lung biopsy at the same anatomical locations. The overall concordance between surgical lung biopsy and cryobiopsies was only 38%. And cryobiopsies would have led to different treatment had surgical lung biopsies not been performed in 52% of the patients. Dr. Maldonado, you wrote an interesting response to this paper, and you've alluded to some of these points uh, in your previous uh, answer. But can you please summarize for us what are some of the methodological issues um, with this paper? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think the uh, paper had good intentions. I think that's that's uh, reasonable at the time they designed the study. A reasonable study to design. There's a couple other studies that are about to come out that have a similar uh, methodology. Um, the issue, of course, now would be to say why in the world would you submit patients to dangerous procedures like this? Uh, at all, and so, but that, but that's an entirely different story. It's easy to play kind of Monday morning quarterback here. Uh, there's a number of limitations, but the most obvious one is that it's a tiny study, uh, and and in this tiny study, there were four cases in which the cryobiopsy was non-diagnostic, and I don't understand what that means because I've never had a cryobiopsy that did not biopsy something. So right there, it should tell you that there's some technical issues to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, these, for sure, these four cases should not be included in any uh, any kind of analysis, which which they were actually. Uh, and so uh, the other issue I think with this study is that um, it begs the question, right? When we say uh, that you know uh, cryobiopsy does not correlate well with the surgical lung biopsy, therefore cryobiopsy is uh, not as good as surgical lung biopsy. Well, that doesn't really mean anything because, of course, you don't sample the same areas. It tries to sample the same general areas, of course, but you're always going to have some sampling error, including with surgical lung biopsy, and it should be telling you something that neither cryobiopsy nor surgical lung biopsy correlate well with the multidisciplinary discussion, um, and, and that, to me, is a big, big problem in the study. Uh, the, the the only way, and that's not my analysis, that's Apple Wells' analysis. Apple is uh, obviously doesn't need introduction. It's like super famous ILD expert uh, in in uh, the UK. Uh, his um, his analysis of this is that really, in order to compare cryobiopsy to surgical lung biopsy on these very limited data sets, you need to look at these few cases where. Uh, uh, cryobiopsy and surgical lumbiopsy are discordant, uh, and you need to do a uh, McNamara K-squared test, and if you do that, you get results that are absolutely not significant. In other words, there's no significant difference between cryobiopsy and surgical lumbiopsy. So concluding anything from this paper other than cryobiopsy and surgical lumbiopsy together don't look all that great um, because they don't correlate well with multidisciplinary diagnosis. Uh, I think that's probably the only conclusion um, we can we can draw from that study. Mm-hmm. And alluding to your previous point that there were two patients who had UIP with cryobiopsies but NSIP with surgical lung biopsies, that still probably means that the cryobiopsy was right because UIP trumps NSIP. That would be my guess. You know, if it, and I know Tom Colby very well uh, as a pathologist, his former you know male colleague and, and, and incredibly talented guy. Uh, there's no question if you called UIP on cryobiopsy, it was most likely UIP, uh, and so that tells you that you know surgical biopsy is not perfect. You know, I mean surgical biopsy is not as good as an uh, an explant, right? Uh, so, you know, it's nice to have a big chunk of tissue, but uh, as long as, you know, you don't take the entire lung and look at the entire lung, you're always going to have sampling errors. Perfect. Dr. Lin, so as interventional pulmonologists, what is the best we can do? What is the optimal tissue size we should try to obtain to confirm this patheogenity that we need to diagnose UIP? Uh, I I think uh, in, in most of these studies that are publishing either cross-sectional area or greatest diameter of cryobiopsies, 
it's in the range of five to ten millimeters, and that seems to be, you know, if you if you take a surgical lung biopsy slide and kind of carve out one or five to seven millimeter chunks of it, uh, that tends to be enough for the the pathologist to see the heterogeneity that they need to. Um, I think the key is getting, uh, you know, we know from some of these uh, papers out of Paletti's group that uh, multiple sites is better than one site, multiple segments is better than one, or multiple lobes is better than one, um, and, you know, more than one biopsy matters, and so uh, I think a lot of us doing this are getting in the range of five. You know, eventually there's more risk to getting more, and where that happy medium is, I'm not sure. My personal practice is to go for about five good biopsies. Um, in in that range of of size, uh, you know, uh, five to to ten millimeters, um, and that seems to be sufficient, at least in our our practice here. And we've got you know two hundred something cases now um, to to buy to to diagnose uh, our our personal yield uh, in our center is about seventy five percent. So I think that's the um, the goal. And, and there's a lot of variation I think between centers on whether you biopsy right against the pleur, whether you come back a little further what probe size you use, all of these things make some difference in size, um, but uh, I think that should be the the uh, desired size or somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, just shy of a centimeter for biopsy and get multiple awesome, of them. Awesome. So let's move on to the complications. So bleeding rates with cryobiopsies are variably reported. Uh, Dr. Lynch, if I looked at your uh, GTT article in 2017 and cherry-picked the papers that use the bronchial blocker, the median bleeding rate is 0%. So what is the true bleeding rate with cryobiopsies, and how do we design this if we use the recommended technique of using a bronchial blocker and not biopsying more than one centimeter away from the pleura? Uh, you're right. The, in, in the vast majority of publications so far, there's well, in, in no one is using a standardized bleeding scale because there's not really a great standardized bleeding scale for bronchoscopy, certainly not one that can account for the use of a prophylactically Place bronchial blocker. Um, it kind of there are a few scales out there, and that that kind of confounds most of them. Um, and so it's hard to tell from the existing literature how people are grading their bleeding. Um, I, I think most of these papers have suggested when some a bleed that was physiologic in in consequence happens, and I think that's what most of these papers are grading as somewhere in the the nature of a moderate to severe bleed, and that seems to be. Uh, in the range of five to ten percent in the majority of these these papers, but there isn't standardization that needs to be there uh, as far as how we assess and report bleeding. I think for this procedure, it's something that we need to uh, do better with. Um, and I think it's certainly given the data that we have. I mean, we started doing biopsies here before blockers were common practice. Um, we had several significant bleeds. We've used blockers ever since. I think there is no reason not to use a blocker in this procedure. Uh, it, it absolutely is required, I think, to safely uh, do this, and it works really well. Uh, it, it's easy to place. There's different mechanisms that you can do it, different blockers out there, but it, it's straightforward to do, and there's there's no downside to it, and it, it works quite well. Perfect. Thank you. So let's briefly discuss what the new future has in store for cryobiopsies. That's two interesting direct comparison trials that I'm aware of that have a very similar design. The first was at four centers in the U.S., and in this study, patients undergoing vac surgical lung biopsy were first made to undergo 10 conventional transfrontal biopsies and then five cryobiopsies in the same anesthesia setting. The outcomes assessed included diagnostic yield, tissue quality, and safety. Due to challenges in recruiting, the study only has 16 patients, and this study is currently pending publication. 
and a similar study abbreviated as gold eyes at multiple centers in Australia consented participants for both surgical lung biopsy and cryobiopsy, again within the same anesthesia episode. Specimens were blindly assessed by three pathologists, both individually and by consensus, and importantly, each tissue sample was considered in conjunction with clinical and radiological data within a centralized MDB. Dr. Maldonado, could you please tell us why these studies are extremely important for the future of cryobiopsies to diagnose DPLDs? Well, I, I think they're important because, uh, um, you know, they are looking at what ILD experts are telling us um, it, the gold standard should be for the diagnosis of ILD, which is that multidisciplinary discussion. And so um, they are going to look at the respective contributions of cryobiopsy and surgical biopsy to that diagnosis. And if it so happens that uh, that correlates well for confident diagnosis, then I think uh, this would position cryobiopsy as an interesting alternative to surgical biopsy, provided there's not a ton of complications from cryobiopsy. That's one of the problems with these studies is that because you're doing all these procedures in the same patient in the same setting, it's, it's difficult to tease out, you know, what, uh, what the complications, at least after the procedure, are attributable to one intervention over the other. But if in the sequence of you doing the procedure, you do your cryobiopsy, you get a big bleed or something that, you know, precludes any, any additional biopsy, then you know that that's a problem. I suspect we, they, they won't see that, but, you know, you never know. So, so that's a signal certainly to, uh, to look for. Uh, I think this should be uh, important studies because they'll be the last studies to look at cryobiopsy that way, right? Nobody should ever consider doing such studies anymore just because it's just not... An, uh, at this point, after these studies are completed, this will not uh, be an ethical thing to do. The, both procedures now we know have significant complications, uh, certainly, certainly surgical biopsy with best-case scenario, 1.7% inpatient mortality, in my view, should probably not be done anyway, and that's what you actually saw in, in the study here in the U.S. is that it took five years to recruit 16 patients, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a reason for that: is, is that people are very reluctant to uh, getting their IOP patients through even a VAX procedure for for surgical lung biopsy. So, um, you know, cryobiopsy is not a procedure we like to do, uh, and 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 quite frankly, at Vanderbilt, we've you know we've decrease our number of procedures quite dramatically. We're still doing it. There's, you know, various uh, opinions about whether we should continue to do them or not. I think it's fair to say that we're all, um, you know, eager to wait uh, uh, for the results of both Lonnie and Mormon and Yarmouth uh, and Mormon and studies and Colby's study to, to form a more final opinion about cryobiopsy. What is certainly true is that um, if, if, you know, uh, you cannot criticize cryobiopsy without necessarily criticizing surgical lumbiopsy. And surgical lumbiopsy was still recommended in both guidelines on ILD that came out last year from the ACA, TRS, and, and et cetera, and from the Fleshner Society. Uh, in both cases, if you have a suspicion of DIP and no definitive uh, uh, typical UIT pattern on your high risk disease, they recommend to consider surgical lumbiopsy, and both guidelines did not make any comment as to whether cryobiopsy should be considered for lack of data. Of course, that's 
incredibly misleading because it gives the impression for clinicians that, well, uh, you know, you should do surgical endoscopy as opposed to cryobiopsy. I think we've got enough simulated data to suggest that cryobiopsies are clearly, in my opinion, clearly safer than surgical endoscopy. Uh, and, uh, and as far as their respective contribution to the diagnosis, I don't see any difference whatsoever. So as far as I'm concerned, if I'm going to have... If I have an ILD someday, I probably won't get any biopsy period. If I have to get a biopsy because my, my wife twists my arm, you know, hard enough, I'll get a prior biopsy done, but that's enough. <laughs> awesome, uh, awesome. And yeah, I, I think... Go ahead, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I, I was just going to... To me, the the bottom line is that we, when we think about doing either of these three, cryo or surgical biopsy, we need to really think about uh, how this is going to change management. Like, you know, take a step back and see, is this really, you know, uh, a lot of us are interventional pulmonologists doing this procedure, hopefully, and so we are not ourselves working up the interstitial lung disease. We're being sent patients by our colleagues or other centers or whatever uh, who, like like Fabian mentioned earlier, everyone wants a diagnosis, but at a point we also, the responsibility, it, it is incumbent on us to make sure that we are, if we're going to put a patient through a procedure with risk, we're doing it for the right reasons. And so, you know, the patient with a DLC of 20%, even if you find UIP in that patient, how are, how are antifibrotics going to help that patient? It's going to help them have more bowel movements every day, and that's about it. Um, as opposed to a patient with, you know, some early reticular change, maybe a family history of, of UIP who's got a, a, you know, DLCO and TLC are in the 70% range. That's the ideal patient, in my mind, for cryobiopsy. They're not they're they're not on oxygen. They're still functional. They've got a little bit of cough. They have the writings on the wall that something's brewing. That's the patient who benefits from antifibrotics, if anybody does, uh, because you catch them early. Uh, maybe this is the lead time that Fabian mentioned in this other study, but that's the patient in my mind that that would be perfect for for cryobiopsy. So I think taking a step back as we get these referrals and making sure that we're we're doing these biopsies for the right reasons and the right patients patient selection, I think is is everything for this. Perfect, perfect. And as we come to the end of the podcast, uh, Dr. Maldonado, would you be able to briefly elaborate on what aspects of cryobiopsies the ongoing ECCP guidelines will be addressing? We assembled a committee of experts probably, I want to say, three or four years ago uh, to try to convince the ACCP to uh, consider putting out a, a, not not a guide, guideline because there's not enough you know data out there to formulate a guideline, but it's a consensus statement based on best best evidence. Uh, it's taken this long to finally get a, a, a manuscript, which we're very proud of, which is currently under the final steps of review and should be out before the end of the year. Uh, in the meantime, because we wanted something to come out fairly quickly, we did have a uh, consensus statement that was done with multiple individuals from across the world that we published in Respiration, uh, I think last year or a year, two mm -hmm. years ago maybe, uh, which has all the rationale and all the technical um, uh, recommendations to do cryobiopsies well uh, and patient selection and so on that uh, folks can refer to. Uh, and then again, the ACCP guideline hopefully will be published in just before the end of the year. Fantastic. Uh, so this has been a wonderful and highly enlightening discussion. Um, any closing comments, uh, Dr. Lenz, you want to go first? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I think uh, my my closing maybe was what I was just talking about. Uh, as far as uh, if your if your cryobiopsy is, uh, Fabi mentioned earlier, a procedure we don't love to do. I mean, this is this is a procedure you have to respect. 
this is procedure you have to go into uh, with thought and with forethought and planning, uh, and especially if you are uh, have not done it before, you're looking to introduce it to your center. I certainly think this is something that uh, you want to go to someplace that does a lot of these to, to see how it's done and learn how it's done. You can't just read a paper and I think pick this up safely. Um, it, that said, I think if you approach patients uh, and consider, uh, you know, how this is going to change their management and uh, give thought to how the procedure is done, there's no one way to right way to do this. Probably there's multiple right ways, but but finding and learning a way that works. Uh, I, I think it's a procedure that, that has potential benefit, again, as long as we're in this paradigm where tissue matters in, in ILD, which right now we're stuck in, and, and hopefully at some point we won't be. Um, but it's uh, it's something that, it's a procedure that requires respect, um, but I think has value if all the precautions are taken. Awesome, awesome. And Dr. Maldonado, anything to close? Not, not really. I think I would echo what Rob said. I mean, if, if you're doing, if somebody's going to, do cryobiopsy, they should know how to do it. Uh, it it's uh, a procedure you don't want to do without a bunker blocker. You don't want to do it without an airway that will allow for, uh, you know, rapid intervention. If there's a bleeding, you want to be facile and putting chest tubes. Uh, you know, there, there is data out there with um, more cavalier approaches to cryobiopsy. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, awake patient through the nose, this is unacceptable, uh, should never be done. And so uh, just be mindful of that. And the other thing I'll say is that just uh, I want to thank you for doing this. I think this is a great idea. I hope this podcast is successful, not just because I was part of it, but it's a great idea. <laughs> uh, and uh, and just plug in uh, uh, for our AVIP membership. Uh, if, if folks are interested uh, in getting involved, there's a number of committees that are uh, going to be looking for uh, uh, new positions, new open positions for a variety of committees, including the research committee. So uh, keep an eye, you know, on that and apply if you're interested. Perfect, perfect. I cannot thank our experts enough for their time today and the clinical polls they have shared with us. With that, we conclude an exciting episode here on the AABIP podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Do also check out our website, theipodcast.com, and please do provide us with feedback and suggestions on what topic and which expert you want to hear next. Until next time, take care.